You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, hey, I'm coming back at you from my fly on the call offices after an unplanned week off, just because things have been kind of stressful lately. But I'm so excited to bring you today's episode with one of my favorite bands, Downhall. They're a band I really feel like I've grown with after the years of shouting to as many people as I can about them as possible. Their debut album, Before You Fall Asleep, was one of my favorites of 2019 and was the perfect culmination of what they were doing with their sound up to that point. But boy was I blown away when I first played my advance of the follow-up, Proof. It's totally different and better in just about every way. Stick around to hear all about the creation of Downhall 2.0, how they wrote Proof with a different environment in mind, their experience recording with Chris Teddy from The World Is A Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid To Die, and being a vinyl band. Oh, and in case you missed it, Gordon, Robbie, and I also did a condensed episode of Fly On The Call for the Alternative's final variety stream. We broke down the singles from Proof, and you can check it out anytime you'd like at the link in the show notes. Now here's my conversation with Downhall. Kind of going back as far as the the beginning of the writing process for proof, um, I feel like before you fell fell asleep is you know this really great culmination of kind of everything you had done with downhaul up to that point. And I'm curious, kind of like, what were you going into proof like thinking? Like, did you feel like you need to switch things up and make something totally different, or did that just kind of develop naturally? So, have you read um, David Burns' book, How Music Works? No, I haven't. So David Byrne is the singer of the talking heads that I have a storied history with. Um, He wrote a book called how music works. And the first couple chapters of the book are about how like the place that music is performed impacts the music that is written. And the examples that he gives are like, Uh, like tribal drum circles, how those would be performed outside where acoustics are non-existent and you can have all these fast choppy rhythms and things like that. And the opposite would be kind of like Gregorian chants. um, And those are in, you know, huge cathedrals and things like that, where these long tones are able to resonate and bounce around the rafters of these churches. But you couldn't perform a Gregorian chant outside and you couldn't perform a drum circle in a cathedral. What does that have to do with my band's new album? (laughs) Uh, We played a show at Motorco, which is a 500 cap in Durham. And the bill was us, Oso Oso, Future Teens, and Sidekicks. And it's a, it was the biggest room we'd ever played. And we sounded terrible. We played awful. We not, none of our moves landed. Nothing we did connected. I don't think we sold a single T-shirt or like made a single fan that night um, because we were just really, really bad. And as I thought about it more and more, I believe it's because the first hundred shows that this band played were in houses and on the floor of you know, there's a brewery here. We always play. It's a pizza place in Greensboro. It's, you know, garages and things like that. And 
the music that we were writing was really just like all four of us playing at one time at our instruments, full volume, like full bore ahead and whatever dramatic effect we tried to get, it would be like dropouts and Pat sing something or like a bunch of band hits and like none of those things translated to playing in a mid-sized rock club. None of those moves connected. And in that moment, I was like, oh man, we need to write something that is going to translate better to the venues that we're playing now, which are like small rock clubs, you know? And that is what kind of birthed the different sonic direction of the music that we wrote uh, for this album. And Robbie can expand on that's a long answer, but that's that was the exact moment in time when I was like, we need to change something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really good answer. And to add to that, my take on it would be, and I feel like I've seen this out of, and I feel like all of us have probably seen this from our favorite artists and bands over the years, as music fans, whenever you read interviews or like hear them speak and they're asked questions like, you know, like, what are you listening to? Or like, who are you influenced by? And their answers are always, and this might be a little bit of pretension, but also it's like, it's always just like, it's so different than the music. Yeah. And that's always been sort of like eye catching to me. And I'm always just like, why are they doing what they're doing? If they're listening to like an example that I have is Animal Collective, one of my favorite bands They're they're like, whenever they're asked what they're listening to, it's always just like the most off the wall, like out of left field stuff. And I'm just like, why are you like, what is going on? How is this translating to like what you're doing? I think for them, they got like sort of pigeonholed into a type of music over the years. And I, I think for us, we wanted to sort of, what not comparing ourselves to Animal Collective, but, but in terms of that like trajectory of like being a band for a long time, which we would like to be, I think we, I would like to avoid that situation where you're sort of stuck making a type of music that you're not as passionate about as, you know, you would like to be. Um, So with that in mind, like, you know, if you had asked me, you know, throughout this whole process of writing and recording and even like right after Before You Fall Asleep came out of like, what are you listening to? What are you into? Like, what is like, like getting you stoked about music? It would not be the stuff that you would put as like a for fans of recommend if you like for Before You Fall Asleep. And I think Gordon and most of the people in our band would say the same. So, um, you know, I think when, when we sort of come to realize that you sort of try and steer the ship a little bit to where you feel the most passionate and um, where you're, you're really like driving everything that you have into it. And that's, I think how a lot of the sonic ideas and concepts came about for, for proof where we were sort of doing what we, what we wanted to do and what we've always felt like fit our style, I guess, better. And, you know, that's no like disrespect to like anyone that loves before you fall asleep or like, that type of music but I just think it fits us better to do what we're doing now and what was that kind of like that process like you know kind of chipping away at you know figuring out what it was that kind of really scratched that itch for you yeah so I think what I wanted to do I wanted to come across less like a songwriter all of the previous downhaul stuff have been me strumming a guitar and then taking it to the band and being like, I've written this song and here it is. 
and I've been kind of precious about capital S songwriting. Whereas with proof, I was a lot more focused on like, like kind of like building blocks and like bricks. And like, there were a couple instances where I would, I, I'm usually always lyrics first and then music from there. But there was a couple instances in proof where like the music ideas came first and like that lends itself to kind of a different construction of a song. And like, I, I think that I tried to like, leave a lot more space uh, for Robbie, Pat and Andy. Whereas like me strumming the chords historically has been kind of like the, the backbone of the song. And we tried to kind of like make the spine of proof like Pat and like what Pat played. Cause there's a lot of times where Robbie and I are playing single notes or like really simple ideas. And like Pat and Andy are the ones who were kind of like the inertia of, of of the music, and that was something that we were definitely like focusing on and like looking at. Yeah, and I think you know one of the kind of most obvious parts of where the sound change came from is you know the bar- the use of baritone guitar throughout the album, um, and that's not something that I've kind of really seen. I don't think many other bands do. I'm curious, like, kind of how that ended up coming into the picture, and you know how you ended up working it in. Um, well, shouts out Reverend Guitars. They have taken great care of us over the years and and they have an amazing baritone that I'm lucky to own. So there are a couple people who are like doing the baritone guitar thing. So Jeff Rosenstock is a big baritone guitar guy. Nathan Hardy from Microwave does a lot of baritone stuff. Chris Teddy is a big baritone guy. And I just wanted something that would break me out of my normal like moves from a songwriting perspective that would force me to like use different chords and different uh, voicings of chords. And hopefully I wanted to play fewer chords. Is <laughs> I really wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to strum fewer chords on this album. Um, and a baritone doesn't really lend itself to, playing cowboy chords. I still do it at some points, but that's not its strength. And we were thinking that it would really complement. Pat plays a five string bass, which is like kind of a new metal heavy music thing. And like, we get questions about it all the time. People like try to clown him for it. Um, But the five string bass and the baritone both have a low B string. So you can really like really get like a low heavy element that doesn't sound like down tuning or drop tuning or tuning to some like crazy metal tuning you can get these kind of like low tones that actually still sound musical and not that those things aren't musical but you can get these low sounds that are more natural and um to my ear at least musical yeah, if you soloed Gordon's guitar parts on on the album, they you would be shocked at how simple they are. Like, and it works; it's perfect because it just it creates such a vibe and like so much space for everything else to happen that I think it just it fits everything so perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really was until like today when I had the album on repeat like pretty much the whole day that I kind of fully started to, you know, recognize how much kind of silence there is on the album, whether it's you know kind of 
you know, specifically made that way. Yeah, that's what we were going for. So it's good to hear that, but go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I guess I'm just curious kind of, you know, can you talk about the role that plays in the album, both on like the rhythmic side, like a song like Scatterplot or something where there's space within the rhythm and then also kind of like the atmospheric side, like the the outros and the interludes? Robbie would be a good person to answer that because he's the, the vibe keeper of the album. <laughs> well, this sort of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier, how the things changed. And I think that it, it, it goes to both of our answers to that question where, you know, Gordon was saying how we were always playing full bore and how like, you know, if you saw us live, we were just like each playing the same thing over and over and like our hands were going the same way. And I just, it wasn't interesting to us anymore. And I think, you know, leaving space for reverb trails or, um, you know, Pat to do something or me to do something or Gordon to do something or the voice to come through clear. I think it just, um, it sets a tone and um, a mood that I think is very evocative. And it, um, I think it draws a listener in, in a way that sometimes just like everyone going full speed all at once doesn't. Um, and I think sometimes like that can sort of blend into the, like, if you're like, sometimes like when you go into a record store and they're just like playing like an old punk rock CD, you're just like, this doesn't even register to me. But I think when you hear something where there's like lots of silence and the use of negative space, I think it just, you have to stop and sort of just like take it all in. And I think it's something that also lends itself to repeated listening where you at first listen, it might not sound like much, but then when you play it over and over again, you start to hear how, things play off each other and um, just the resonance of things sort of brings everything out in a way that is really unique. And um, I think Chris Teddy was the one who sort of like masterminded that and really made that come through in a way that I really enjoy. And, you know, we couldn't have pulled off any of what we did without him and his production and the way that he took everything that we did in the studio and just like just made it all come together, I think was really amazing. So I think he's a big part of what you're hearing in terms of that like negative space and silence and how it all sort of works together. Yeah, and one thing with Before You Fall Asleep and all the EPs is like, we were very concerned with the recordings being faithful to how we sounded live. We were very like, as we were in the studio, it's like a little bit, on Before You Fall Asleep, just like some piano in a song or two, but um, we were constantly like, okay, well, is this what my guitar really sounds like? Is this what these drums really sound like? Is this what like, and um, we tracked live up until this album. And so we were very like focused on sounding, it's almost like the Steve Albini school of recording where like he just puts microphones in the room and you play your songs and that's your record where we just didn't care about that. And part of that might've been informed by COVID <laughs> is we didn't play a single one of these songs live. Um, we haven't, we've, we've never played these songs at a show. Whereas before you fall asleep and the even tornado season and all the EPs, we were like trying out that material live and tinkering with it and seeing like what we liked and what we didn't. And playing them at house shows, you know, playing them at pizza shops and things like that and seeing like what got reactions. Whereas this, like we didn't do any of that for better or for worse. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned this 
kind of being the first time you've worked uh, physically with Chris Teddy in studio uh, after he mixed a couple of your other releases. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about kind of that experience and how it influenced the album? Yeah, I think if you haven't worked with Chris, there are probably two things that really like jump off. There are probably two main things you can discern about Chris without working with him. And that's one, that he's very good because his stuff all sounds great. And two, that he's very creative. Because if you listen to World Is and you know that he produces all that stuff, like the level of like intricacy and like arrangements and all that stuff is like, just like seismic. Like the amount of things going on in a World Is song is like, you got brass, you got strings, you got however many guitars, you got multiple singers, you got keyboards, you got electronic drums and acoustic drums. So like those two things, are apparent from working with Chris. One thing that you would not know about working with Chris if he hadn't done it is how hard he works. Like, I, like, <laughs> he would be, so we, we recorded all of Proof in six days. And every day we did more than like 12, 14, 15 hours and we'd leave after midnight. And when we get in the next day, Chris would already be there, hands and knees in the live room, like liking a cab or like messing with, he, he just like, he goes so hard. I think like the second day he asked if we could take a break so he could pee. He sits down at the computer, like with his snacks, right? And like, doesn't take meals. Like he has his like, whatever those vegan cracker wafers were. And then like, peanuts or something over here uh peanut butter pretzels is the other big one and he just like goes in right and that was something that was eye-opening to me and kind of set the tone for how we were going to do so for i think before you fall asleep was like 15 minutes shorter than this album or something like that maybe 10 minutes how we were going to do like a 10 plus minute longer album in like the same amount of time or less time maybe even and like get it all done at the level we wanted it to and like that's the thing that like really stuck with me about working with Chris not how good he is or how creative he is because those are kind of self-evident but like he truly worked so hard in those six days yeah and to add to that the what struck me about Chris um you know totally agree with everything that Gordon just said but um while we were working on demos and like the lead up to recording, you know, we were emailing a lot with Chris and just sort of sending him demos and getting his thoughts on things. And one, like he listened to the demos and like had like this long Google doc sheet of like little changes, like to tempos and stuff that he would make. And like, that was really, really helpful for us in like the tinkering process, like after writing and demoing, we like practiced a lot. And like, so like that was really helpful for us. And then, you know, at one point unprovoked, I like wrote up a, like several paragraph, like little diatribe about like what we wanted the album to sound like and what our goals were, just sort of like what we had in mind for the songs. Um, I don't know if it made sense. I haven't read it back at, at all. So I hope it made sense. Um, but I, I, I think it did because, or if it didn't, he was able to decipher it in some way that a lot of the decisions that he made after the fact, like after we recorded, so like as he was mixing it, was stuff that he didn't even really ask us about, but he just did it because he knew that's what we were going for. And I think there was just like a intrinsic level of understanding of what we were going for that was sort of unspoken 
but like we just trusted him because you know early on we sort of realized that he had what we had in mind in his mind as well and so just that like just cohesion that we had was so helpful to us because you know we had an idea in our head of what we wanted to sound like but we're not capable of doing it without him and and so he took what we wanted and just ran with it and and made it so so amazing so it was just i recommend him to anyone and i think he was just a pleasure to work with and what were some of those like kind of ideas that you wrote down in that you know i don't remember how you phased it but manifesto like thing about like what what the core of the album was what was it that like kind of shined through the most yeah well i would imagine that uh and i I hate, I hate this word, but I would imagine that cinematic was probably in there somewhere just because I just couldn't think of a better word to describe it. And wide just sort of like, what's that? You said wide lens. Wide, yeah, widescreen. Yeah, widescreen, just sort of like taking what we had. And um, I think another thing that we talked about with him is that leverage was sort of like a bridge to what we were doing. And, you know, I think you could sort of hear where we were going if you listen back to leverage. Um, and then if you also like play leverage like into the first song on proof, I think it you can hear it. It just sort of like flows nicely. Um, and so we're just sort of like, okay, like take leverage and then just like, you know, turn it up by a thousand, you know, add the baritone, um, and then just sort of like space everything out and just let everything breathe way more in a much more like cinematic widescreen way. Um and I, you know, I, I think that's about what it said in, in way more words and probably way less sense. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that kind of uh, like fire in your ass energy recorded in six days, you know, spirit. I'm curious, like, how do you think that kind of affected the the finished product and like kind of the way that you, you know, view the process now? Yeah. I mean, we don't we have we don't work any other way. Like everything that we've done has been in less time than we would have liked to have done it in. So we don't know any other way. So when it's like, okay, we have to do this album in six days. It's like, well, yeah, that's what we do for albums. Like we did, you know, before you fall asleep in six days, we did tornado season in two days. The EPs were all two days. Like it's just what we do. Um, You know, it was daunting because we knew that we wanted to do more um, and that we wanted to just like take everything up a notch. Um, but that's just sort of where the preparation comes in and that, you know, we were, we demoed everything twice. We practiced, you know, like, you know, three times a week for a few weeks and just really hammered out everything. Um, and I just think, you know, Gordon, Pat, Andrew, like they're all just such amazing musicians that, um, I won't speak for myself, but I, it just, I think we're all just, we, we are locked in and. It, I, I, I don't know. And, and working with Chris obviously made it a lot easier because he worked so hard. And, you know, Gordon mentioned this when we were driving home and I just didn't from the studio that he just like he really wanted to make sure that we worked a lot harder than we had in the past. And that really hit home for me because, you know, we did. I mean, you know, we, we were there until like midnight every night and um, it was just a really rewarding experience. And two like pretty practical answers are that like, first of all we don't write in the studio at all so like there was no like what if this part went twice as long or like well I don't have words for this song or like well I don't know what I'm gonna play like every time we come in super super rehearsed and and the second like kind of practical thing about it is like we um we've never it's kind of what Robbie said we've never had 15 days to record an album you know so like the way we prepare is like very bounded by 
just reality and, and the time that we have in the studio, like in a fundamental, like number of hours kind of way. Um, and, and the other thing is that we didn't listen back at all. Like when we did the EPs and before you fall asleep, like we tracked it live, right? So you would play it and then you'd all go into the control room and listen back and you'd be like messing with guitar tones and like somebody would go get lunch. And like, we just like, we left the studio with like no idea what the album sounded like, because not only were we not listening back on a micro level, like we weren't listening back to like, okay, well, like that's everything on the first song. What do we think? We would just go right on to the next one. And like really trusted that Chris would bring it all together. But like, we literally just did not spend time listening back to what we had to hindsight was really risky, but we didn't, I mean, we didn't spend time. Chris was always just like, yeah, just get another take and then it will be fine. Like yeah, if you just yeah. give me more takes, one of them will be fine. And then we don't need to listen back because I will make it, you know, work in the end. We, there was never a time where we comped vocals, which is the worst part of being in the studio. And so we always did back when we tracked live, like, I'd sing it seven times, and then we'd all sit in the control room and listen for what might be like Frankenstein takes of a whole song. I just like sang for eight hours, and then he was like, I think I have what I need. On to the next. Like, we, we didn't sit there in the control room listening on the studio monitors. It was just a dangerous way to make an album, but it worked. <laughs> And how did, you know, how did that affect the, you know, the entire post-production process? Uh, the mix, the mix notes were very long. Um, not that Chris doesn't do an amazing job, but it's just, you know, sir, you know, we know when we get the mixes back that there are other takes of everything. So it's just like, if like, if a vocal part doesn't sound right, or if a guitar line isn't perfectly in time, like, it's just like, okay, we'll use the next take. And then, so the mixing process was sort of a lot of back and forth with like shared Google docs and pages and pages of, um, notes on everything um but chris was great because to his point to, to like to chris's point like he had everything that he needed like he was right like if something didn't sound like it sound right in the mix it was just like okay swap it out get the next and it wasn't even like a this is wrong it's like i don't like how like i wish i sang it a little bit differently do you have a better version of it and he did um so it's like you know pick the one that is in tune and then also sounds the best he had everything and um it was risky, but it worked out. If you heard the first mixes of the album, I think a lot of people would be like, this is just the album. It's not like we were like, you messed up the whole guitar vision or like the panning is way wrong. It was like the second syllable of the word like blank at timestamp blank. Do we have to take of that? You know, and we'd be like, yeah, we do. We're like, oh, like Robbie came off a note a little early on a riff at like 225 can we hear a different version of that? And like that, the way that we, the reason we had mixed notes that were so micro like that is a product of not listening back, which we didn't do because we didn't have time. So if we had like another day or day and a half in the studio, the mixed notes would have been like significantly less, I think, because we would have listened back and picked the ones we liked. But For sure. Yeah, and I think what you were saying about kind of like your your preparation going into the studio kind of makes sense with what you were saying earlier about the kind of, you know, starting to play bigger rooms and realizing that your music kind of needs to be tweaked to fit that. Um, can you talk a little about kind of just like where that mentality came from? I think it's kind of, it, 
an interesting kind of like realistic take on things. <laughs> so I think that like, it's like a trope, right? When you talk to your friend who just played a show and you're like, man, you guys were great. And your friend is like, I thought we sucked, you know? Um, and I am that guy. Like we're going back, riding back from a show and I'm always like overanalyzing the little dumb stuff. And like, I couldn't hear anything in this song. I thought that song was probably way pitchy. And like, but I think in that, we played that show in that room that was like, twice as big than anything we'd played at that point. This is before we'd played Broadway, I think, Robbie. Yeah. Or even then, even then, the rooms were laid out so differently that Motorcoat felt enormous. Um, and I think that we were all undeniably kind of like, that didn't go great. Like, that, like, you can look out into the crowd and you can see that you're just, like, not connecting, right? And, like, in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I want to melt into the floor. Like, this, like, this can't be over soon enough. Like, can I turn around and can we just cut two songs from the set and, like, get done sooner? Um, but I think in that moment, I was like, if we're going to be playing clubs, which is what, what we want to do, um, even in the, like, towns we play on tour, like, we need to be a band that sounds better through a house system instead of, like, people writing right in your face when you're playing a house show, you can play whatever you want, you know, but just like being in that situation and like wanting to be better and wanting to be a good live band um, is what really kind of started me thinking what would, what could we do, you know, that would make us sound better in that situation. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, earlier I was talking about kind of like all the space on the album. And I think something that I've always kind of associated with Downhall is a, a certain like lyrical density. But the more I kind of like am thinking about, the more I think it's kind of like a, a richness of the imagery that you kind of paint in your lyrics more than necessarily a lot of lyrics. I guess I'm curious just kind of like how you go about your lyric writing approach and kind of how you develop your style. So I was a latecomer to songwriting, to capital S songwriting. I had been in bands before. I'd been in bands with Robbie before, but it was always music first. And when we needed lyrics, we would just, Robbie's a writer too. We would just like pull from our journals or whatever and just like slap syllables in until we had a melody and that would be it. I didn't start like sitting down with the acoustic guitar and like writing a song until um, 2015. So like the songs on the first Downhall EP are like my first songs. Um, and and it, you can tell um, like <laughs> the songs on the first Downhall EP. So first of all, I had like a bunch of songs and those were the best four. So that shows you how bad that whole crop of other songs was if like 15, 18 and driveway made it right. Like there was some bad stuff in that crop of songs. Um, so that was kind of like my first times I wrote songs. And like, I think you can kind of hear me getting better at it and getting more confident and like kind of finding what my voice would hopefully be over time. But I 
for a long time was kind of like stuck in a rut of like the only thing that really inspired me to write was like romantic situations right so there's like to be blunt like a lot of songs about girls and early downhaul stuff and like it's a little embarrassing like to think back on that but I was just so green as a songwriter that like I hadn't got that out of my system and I hadn't had like the reps and I hadn't had like I hadn't figured out how to write about other stuff and I hadn't like figured out how to put yourself in places other than heartbreak or like missing someone or like resenting somebody. And I think that happens to a lot of people. I, I think it's, those are easy things to like inspire feelings. And that's what I was writing about for a long time. Um, whereas proof I'm happier about the subject matter of the songs um because they're not all just about girls so like that is something that i'm like thank god like i saw this metaphor online and it was like um not putting out new music or like having music having your most music out that's years old is like being stuck in the clothes that you like wore your first year of high school or something like that it, it's like you're like kind of tethered to what you put out most recently. And even before you fall asleep, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I just like, I want that to go away. Like I want people to stop listening to it. And uh, I don't know if that's a good answer or not. My process, Robbie, what would you say? Answer that question for me. Well, I, I to sort of condense what he was saying there. I think the, the progression that you hear notably between the two albums um, is is just sort of like a removal of um i don't know if first person is a great way to say it because there are like i and um you know you are speaking sort of like that sometimes on the on the new album but they're like grounded and sort of like in the universal and sort of like details are removed in a way that lends itself to um listeners sort of being able to put themselves in the situation themselves and have an easier time relating to them in a way. And I think also like Gordon was saying about like, they're not, most of them aren't about relationships, um, romantic relationships that is. Um, so, and I think like, yes, I, I you know most people have romantic relationships, but you know, there's so much of our lives that isn't that and so much, you know, um, unfound meaning in that. And I think um, sort of tapping into that um i think is just a huge level up um not that gordon wasn't writing amazing lyrics beforehand but i think on the new album you're seeing just a, a, a sort of treatise on everything not so much you know this one part of my life and not only that but it's i think it's inherently more relatable because you're taking out some of the details just like the specific i mean you see like on standing water there's like newport news mentioned but you know, for the most part, I think it's just the, the the hard details that can sort of space people from the lyrics are sort of removed in a way that can bring people in. And I hope that I hope that people sort of notice that and gravitate towards that because I think it's like a big selling point of the record um, lyrically. Yeah, and I mean, I know people won't be able to hear it until the album's out, but I have to talk to you about Barry because, you know, when it first came on, like when I hit play on the advance, I was like, 
taken aback but like sucked in so immediately like i love the you know dark spooky almost kind of like primal vibes of it and how it kind of readjusts the expectations for the album is and i would love to hear you know about how that one came together and kind of about its place on the album yeah it's funny i heard from a friend who who did listen to it that he got reminded of tool from it (laughs) it was that which is it was evan um uh (laughs) kill a cow on twitter uh yeah shouts out to kill a cow um he he mentioned tool and he was like sorry and i was like bro don't be sorry like i love tool i might be (laughs) uh, unique in our band as the one person that likes tool but like i i can hear it um so i you know and i think that's just it speaks to that how different that song is that like you can hear someone could say it sounds like tool someone could say it sounds like you know a completely different band and I think that sort of springs out of the fact that it's so different than what we, we sound like usually. Um, but yeah, but speaking of like towards like the development of the song, I mean, it started off as two different songs um, and you can, um, you know, you can hear it, I think. Um, we're not sure anymore if you can hear it, um, that it's two different songs and that there was sort of like the intro and then like, you know, bury the song. Um, and it was demoed as two different songs. Um, and always sort of meant to be back to back and to flow as one. But, you know, after the demo process, we sort of realized that it was silly to split these songs up and that I think it just, it just all comes together much cleaner and more evocatively as one song. So we added a little riff in the middle and connected them and had some through lines sonically, which Chris was a big help with. Um, and it all came together and I was pretty worried about it. And there weren't, and I don't think everyone in the downhall orbit was on board with, um, with it being one song, no <laughs> names named. Yeah. No names named, but, and, and Hey, maybe it was the wrong decision, but I yeah, don't it think it is. Yeah, I, I think it was, yeah, it was the right decision. I think so. And I think it came out amazing. And, I, and it's, it's really rewarding to hear people say that it is their favorite song because it's one that I've been a little bit, have a little bit of trepidation about because it's so different. And it's the first song and like, you could, you could, there are some people that love Downhall that might put that song on and just be like, nah, not for me anymore. I don't like this band anymore. Yeah. So Smart I'm not gonna listen to this. So, yeah. Yeah, so originally Scott, the divide was right at the downbeat of where Pat goes into that like dun 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 and Andy's playing that dun 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 right there is where it was split so it was like the heavy stuff and then like the mosh call riff that Robbie plays and then like the band hits they're like dun 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 down bang track two so we had like what we were calling like the intro and then we had Barry, which was this song that was like a nice neat three minutes and 34, 340 seconds, something like that uh, would have been a nice little single. But now we have this seven minute thing that um, I'm convinced that a lot of people have like opened the SoundCloud and seen and been like, or like, have like clicked on once and been like, and then it goes into this six minute thing, right? So like, I like, when I first like looked at this, I was like, damn it, like that's like 13 minutes of music, pretty much uninterrupted. And it's like two songs. So like, 
I don't, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it lands. Well, I for one love it, and I can't wait for people to have that like that first reaction to it. And that's what I was about to say that it sets the tone. I think, and and um, it couldn't have been any. It had to be the first song. Nothing else could have been the first song. I think it just like and like you know tonally, there are songs that aren't so minor key. Um, like towards the end of the album, you'll you might not think it sounds exactly like Barry, but I think it was important to put first because it sort of like is a tone setter and just lets everyone know that like this is not the same band that you listen to up until now as corny as that sounds <laughs> downhaul album <laughs> you know mentioning the the seven minute song into the six minute song and just the, general, the overall like structure of the album is really interesting to me and i'd love to hear a little bit about how you know the sequencing went and you know the general like molding of, of the journey of the album thought you'd never ask <laughs> bobby do you want to uh, speak on the sequencing so yeah so the I think when we were writing songs, like um, the first few songs that were coming out um, were like Barry, uh, Eyesight, Standing Water. So like, and when you look at the album, like those are all on different places, but we did, as we were writing songs, we had sort of songs that um, we knew wanted to be back to back. Um, so we had like, you know, like when you're making a puzzle, you have like pieces that are all put together. And then, you know, over time you have like, okay, well, like this chunk over here goes with this chunk. Um, so in that respect, like the sequencing of the album is very deliberate and it wasn't before you fall asleep as well. Like that was something that we went into the studio with the sequence already made up and the same, same thing with this one. Um, you know, we, uh, everyone in our band loves, uh, records and collecting vinyl. And, um, so we put a big emphasis on that listening experience. And so like, to that point, it's, it's sequenced. We came into the studio sequenced the songs ready for vinyl so we knew that circulation was going to end side a and that standing water like that very punchy opening um sorry curtains yes curtains and side a and that standing water um open side b in a way that really sort of like hits you in the mouth and i i think that was very deliberate and i think it works perfectly and we knew that that was going to be a good like opener but not so much the album but on the you know the second side of the album um and then like sort of zooming out a little bit in terms of the sequence. I One thing that I enjoy about the album and that I think was sort of deliberate, but not so much was um, the way that, you know, Barry starts off very minor and dry, not so much. And then Scatterplot is sort of a, a minor song. Curtains is darker and then sort of over the length of the album, um, the tension in the songs sort of peels back a little bit and things open up and they breathe even more. Um, and like sort of by eyesight and the closer, it's a very like breezy in a way um, sort of feel. And it, I, I think it sort of gets more hopeful in tone. And um, I don't want to say happy, but more just like, um, I just think things open up in a way as the album goes that it's sort of like, you can sort of like ease back a little bit and it's not so like dense and in your face. And I think that um, works really well over the course of the album. Yeah, it has like a trajectory that's supposed to feel like like taking something and like dwelling in it and then kind of like releasing it. You mentioning kind of the the vinyl experience as something that you had in mind is something that really appeals to me as well because I'm a huge collector. But um, like I love the way that that also, you know, plays in with like the album artwork and even like the the limited variant that sold out the first day. Um that kind of like going along with the artwork very well looking like that kind of like 
uh, headlights through the fog. Uh, can you talk a little about kind of like the art direction of the album and how it kind of like backs up the the darker sides of the music? Yeah. Um, thanks for mentioning that. That was like a huge thing. So <laughs> this is Robbie's victory lap on the art. So everybody we've talked to has been like, talk about the art. And I'm like, that's all you do. <laughs> and it's, and like, I would say like the music comes first always and forever. Um, but it is important to me and it's important to all of us. Um, and I think it can, it can like buttress of like a album experience so much. And so like, I really wanted to make sure that, and I, we all really wanted to nail it. And, um, and just sort of like along the theme of leveling up, I think, you know, um, the, the album art before was all amazing. And like all the artists that we've worked with have been really great. Um, but for this one, like, you know, after we tracked it and even like, as we were starting to write songs and, and and sort of get everything you know worked out in terms of sequence and what was going to happen on the album sort of like the picture of what we wanted and this was informed by like the lyrical content as well um of like i we started to have images in 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 our heads about what we wanted the art to look like and not even like a we wanted a guy standing in front of a car with headlights like that was not like the the idea um but it was just sort of like you know moods and sort of like colors and um i was scouring blogs and art websites for days and weeks <laughs> 80 page deep on on art blogs looking for something that like clicked and like googling different words and nothing was really uh, coming up that really fit and then i stumbled upon um the artist um who is from norway and i'm hoping i'm pronouncing the name right i should have looked it up it's oystein Asplin. um and he had the series um and you know we grabbed a few that we liked from it and um, weren't able to sort of like figure it out off right away. And sort of, so I sort of moved on and we started trying to figure out different, um, you know, we were in like the, um, the the local newspaper here has like this online archive of, of photography. And so like one day, like me and Gordon were on there like scouring for something that might fit. Um, we had a few that we liked, but nothing really ever clicked. And towards like the very end, we came back to Oystein and his pictures and we're just like I had nothing else is making us feel the way that this makes us feel and and then um so we were able to make it work and then we um asked you know our friend Max Stern to to put the layout together and his his work with that just like as soon as he sent us what he had I was like that's it there's no other like that is exactly what I had in my head he nailed it like the combination of Max and Oystein together like the packaging, like the, the back cover is amazing when everyone sees it. I'm, I'm really excited for that as well. Like, I just think it all works together and fits the, the music and uh, I couldn't be happier with the way it turns out. So big shouts out to Oystein and Max. Awesome. <laughs> and then I'd like to wrap up every episode the same way, which is just by asking for a piece of advice or something you've been thinking about lately, you know, about music or life or whatever else is on your mind. Yeah, well, I have a good one. Um, I... I heard, I have a puppy um, and I sort of got a quarantine puppy, which was a interesting decision that I made, but, you know, and I've ended up in, in with my therapist talking about it just because it's a very hectic situation. And, um, and there are times where you get really aggravated with the puppy and, um, and not aggravated with all things in life that aren't puppy related. Um, and one thing that he told me that really resonated with me was that like, if you're ever in like a really hot situation, just like, like, just go into slow-mo mode where you're like moving at like a glacial pace 
and it might not you know manifest itself in you actually like moving slowly but if you try and like get your mind in that uh space that you'll end up sort of like not getting so worked up and it worked for me a lot <laughs> with the puppy so I, I tried to sort of bring that into like if I'm really hot about something at work or something like that just sort of going in slow-mo mode it just really helps me so that's something that came to mind when you said that uh so this is one thing that I like was talking to Max Stern about today and we were talking about how it's so easy to like not count your blessings and like lose sight of all the things you do have and uh the quote I forget who was one of those philosopher guys Euripides or something like that but the quote was um like remember the times you wanted so badly the things that you have now. And I'm just like so bad at that. I'm constantly thinking about like what I want and like more and more that I want. And I feel that I'm entitled to or I deserve or I've earned that I forget to like dwell in the things that um, I am so lucky to have like health and a job and friends who love me and, and things like that. Awesome. Very, very well said for sure. <laughs> I like his answer better. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is there anything that we haven't hit on that you've been really uh, looking forward to getting out there about proof? So I think for both me and Robbie, and this is like a little bit rooted in our answer about being like a vinyl band, like neither of us wanted to pick singles for this album um, because it feels like, like you make this thing, right? And like, we wanna just put it out so bad. We were like, let me just tweet the Spotify. Let me just tweet the SoundCloud. It was what we kept saying, I'll tweet the SoundCloud right now. Um, because like picking singles for us feels so unnatural. And like, especially with, with this album, right? Like picking singles felt so antithetical to like what we were trying to do and like what we cared about. And like, so, I'm just excited to finally have the album out and so that people can listen to it hopefully all at once. Like we're not a Spotify band. We're not a playlist band. We're not a, like, we're not one of those bands where a band that makes records. And um, I hope that I'm glad that people will have the chance to like receive it as such. Wasn't that just so much fun? I know it was a blast for me. Please go give the new Downhall songs a listen ASAP, or at least make a note to do a full run-through of Proof on May 21st when it's released. Whether you've heard the band before or not, it's totally new territory, so I really think it's something you're not going to want to miss. And tweet at me when you do, I'd love to hear what you think. Flying the Call is brought to you by Sound Talent Media. A special thank you as always to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at FlyOnTheCallPod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at FlyOnTheCallPod at gmail.com. To quote one of my favorite downhaul lyrics, if you won't admit you're struggling, then no one knows to help you. Let it ring out.
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.